Today's episode is all about sundowning. But before I jump into the content, I have something that family caregivers may really like. I have this nice, free, handy-dandy resource called Dementia Hacks, 15 Ways to Manage Care Refusals. It has all of the strategies. It's really a nice resource. So if you would like your free copy, please go to my website, MakeDementiaYourBitch.com and download it today. I am currently providing a Dementia Behaviors Masterclass and what you're about to hear is from a section of that Masterclass. This actually allows you to get a sense of what type of content I do provide in these Masterclasses. So sit back and enjoy. Make Dementia Your Bitch podcast, where I explain how caregivers can lovingly respond to confusing or challenging behaviors and reconnect with family members living with dementia. The information in this podcast is for educational purposes and is no substitute for medical advice or care. Now I'm going to switch gears and I'm going to talk about sundowning. And where did this term come from? When I was a nursing assistant in 1982, and yes, it was 40 years ago in May, it will be 40 years in May, depending on when you're watching this video, I was taught about sundowning. What we did in this particular nursing home, our routine was we got everybody up, help them get ready for breakfast. Breakfast was usually around 7.30ish. By 10 o'clock, the trays were gone and, and we were busy helping people get baths or we were giving the baths, getting people dressed. And back in those days, we did not have the incontinence products that you have today. Everything we had was cloth, which meant it didn't work real well. We would literally get people up, walking into the bathroom, they would sit, do their business. We help them get cleaned up, sit them down for breakfast. Because breakfast came around 7.30, quarter of eight, you had time to get the people up who needed to be up and help to the bathroom and get them, if not dressed, at least toileted, face washed, teeth brushed. Now they're sitting ready for breakfast. Everybody would get their breakfast. You would feed the people who needed to be fed, collect the, the trays. Everybody got assisted to the commode again. And then people were bathed, dressed, and then taken to the solarium. Lunch trays would come. We would give out the lunch trays, feed those who had to be fed. And everybody, once we were done, those who needed assistance, we would walk them to the bathroom, have them uh, pee or poop. And we had quite a few people who would lay down after lunch. That was a thing. I would say something like 80% of the people with dementia on this floor took a nap, say from one to three. So by 2.30, you were getting everybody up, putting them on the commode, walking them to the solarium and getting them set up for the three to 11 shift. Well, when I would work three to 11, what I noticed is by six, seven o'clock, as we were done with the dinner trays and we were now walking people to the bathroom, getting them ready for bed, there were some people who went to bed, we, 
you really need it to get them asleep around seven o'clock because I, I, I didn't know it now. I thought it was weird that there were people who literally would go to bed like at six o'clock and you would just check on them every two hours. But what I didn't know back then is as the dementia became more severe and there were fewer neurons that were functioning, these people were more exhausted. The existing neurons had a small, had a pretty brief shelf life. So for people who took a nap and then got up by, those were people we tended to put to bed later. These people would be begging, like they would be, and this was the eighties where everybody was tied, it was awful, but people would be in their chairs, like rocking and crying and begging to be put to sleep. I noticed a lot of agitation right before and right after dinner. It was like from six to eight, all hell would break loose on these units because the, you were trying to put people to bed and the people who you weren't working with were trying to untie themselves, were knocking things over, people were screaming at each other. It was literal bedlam. And I remember saying to the nurses, what is going on here? And they just said, oh, it's called sundowning. And it happens every evening. So as a little nursing assistant with no education or training, I thought that people with dementia literally went down with the sun. So as the sun set, their behaviors magnified until you got them to bed. I was wrong. What sundowning is, it's a period of increased confusion and agitation that historically occurs in the afternoon or evening, but it can occur at any time. Why the afternoon and evening? When you, your brain juice has cycles. All of us may wake up, hopefully feeling refreshed, ready for the day. I know myself, I have to do my Anything that needs the most brain power, I like to do earlier in the day for things that I, oh, and if I don't enjoy doing it, it has to happen first thing in the, in the day because all my willpower is strongest earlier in the day. As the day goes on, my willpower seems to erode. My brain juice seems to erode. So by, that's why if I don't plan my dinner, it's likely I might be eating cookies and an ice cream sandwich, not a salad and a protein and something healthy because all my willpower is gone by the end of the day. My brain juice is depleted. That is normal because as the day goes on, you are using all your willpower, all your brain juice, all your acetylcholine to get stuff done. By the end of the day, even though your brain is trying to make more neurochemicals, the cycle is such that as you get closer to bedtime, the amount of neurochemicals are dwindling. And that makes sense because now your brain is getting ready for sleep mode. So other neurochemicals that put your brain to sleep, they're popping up and telling you you're tired, you need to go to bed. But most of us try to force ourselves to stay up or we're like, oh my God, I got this deadline. Let me drink some Red Bull. I got to get this done. And so we screw up our brain chemicals. And then we wonder why we're all over the place. So we all have diurnal cycles that we need to respect. And there are some people who are naturally night owls and you don't want to talk to them in the morning. And that's okay too. What in a person living with dementia is not only do they have that normal, and when I say normal, I say traditional 
cycle, they also have fewer neurons. So the amount of acetylcholine, serotonin, and other important brain chemicals are already operating on the low end in the morning. So as the day goes on, the amount of circulating neurochemicals that are needed go way low. They, they go way below the, the healthy level. So that depletion of brain chemicals can plus the environment. If you have the environment where things are getting darker, maybe there's um, a change in activity. Like in, in cases where I've had intergenerational families, the rush of children coming home from school around four o'clock and the uptick in energy and noise level exceeded the person living with dementia's ability to handle that. So in, in particular cases, I saw situations where the arrival of the grandchildren from school triggered the agitated and aggressive behaviors because the person living with dementia really didn't have enough brain juice to filter out the level of noise and the activity. And I had to help families come up with strategies that right before the kids come home, maybe this is a good time to maybe lay mom, have mom take a little nap or have her go into her room with the TV and shut the door. And I know it's not fair to the kids, but it is what it is. And maybe have the kids run around outside for a while and decompress and then come into the house and do homework or at least let them know, shh, don't uh, disturb grandma. So what I suggest in situations where there is an uptick in confusion and, agitate, and agitation, can't talk, especially by the end of the day, is to observe for patterns. When does the behavior occur? Is it happening like one o'clock in the afternoon because your loved one's up at 5 a.m.? Or is it happening more at six because your loved one wakes up at 10? Try to figure out what the pattern is. What is going on immediately before the behavior? Could There could be a trigger, such as the kids coming in the door from school. Or you come home from work and the paid sitter leaves and you are exhausted. And maybe the paid sitter didn't keep mom as active as you would like mom to be. So you walk in the door and mom wants your attention and you don't have anything left. So you don't mean to, but you're snapping at mom and telling her just to sit down. And that's creating a, an agitated state. Once you observe the pattern, that's when you do something before everything goes downhill. Let's take a quick commercial break and I'll be right back. tend to notice at 3.30, stuff tends to go cattywampus, which is an Alabamian term for sideways. When you notice things are starting to go in the wrong direction at three o'clock, you change up what's going on. Maybe at three o'clock is when you all go outside because that sunshine, that direct sunlight literally can reset people's diurnal cycle. That light hitting the retina does change brain chemicals. So maybe that's the time for an outdoor walk or an outdoor activity, or maybe that's the time for a drive around the neighborhood. Maybe that's the time to have a snack. So knowing your loved ones, likes and dislikes, 
And it's a little bit of trial and error. You can introduce a new activity before the usual start of the confusion and agitation. And the other thing to think about, and this also goes into delusions, as people move backwards in time, they could be reliving a difficult or traumatic period in their past. And knowing about it may help you come up with strategies. I've had situations where the person living with dementia had some really bad childhood events where dad was an alcoholic. So when dad would come home after work, the kids would literally hide in the closet. And all of a sudden, mom is hiding in the closet. So knowing if there was something traumatic or unusual in the past can often help you come up with the strategies. The take home message here is a lot of the behaviors that you see is your loved one living with dementia trying to convey to communicate to tell you that they are feeling some level of distress and next week when i talk about wandering and vocalizations some of that wandering behavior or repetitive behavior is the the attempt to communicate an unmet need, such as hunger, having a full bladder, needing to have a bowel movement, or some type of pain. I talk a lot about physical unmet needs. People also have mental and emotional unmet needs. They may feel bored, or not even boredom. You may have, when I talk about shadowing and i thought i did have shadowing here oh i did not my fault okay i'm going to talk about shadowing shadowing is when the person living with dementia literally glues themselves to the caregiver and everywhere the caregiver goes it's like mary had a little lamb everywhere that mary went the lamb was sure to go the person living with dementia is always following you everywhere. So you may sit down and you're trying to pay bills and your loved one sits next to you and asks you the same question. What are you doing? I'm paying the bills. Oh, can I help? No. Oh, so what are you doing? And what's happening is with sundowning, you have the loss of short-term memory. So the person is literally floating around in their, in their mental world and you are the anchor. So, so they feel safe with you because you are the constant in this very bizarre world of dementia. So if they're near you and you are their security blanket, you are their rock, you are their external hard drive, you, you have all the memories. They're going to hang out with you because you'll be able to tell them what's going on. You'll be able to tell them what to do. And often you will hear the person living with dementia say things like, what do I do next? What should I be doing? And as a caregiver, you're trying to do all these tasks and it's easy to get frustrated and say, I don't know, leave me the hell alone. Nope, not a good way to handle that. An understandable way, but not a good way. That's when uh, next week I'm going to talk about meaningful activities and keeping your loved one engaged. It's a good idea when you are experiencing sundowning or excuse me, when you are experiencing shadowing and the person living with dementia is like stuck like glue, that you can give them an activity where they can sit and do that activity 
in your area and you can accomplish what you need to accomplish. It's also a good idea earlier in the disease to introduce other family members or paid caregivers if possible to spend time with that individual on a routine basis like every Tuesday or every other Thursday so that there's now a schedule and a routine where cousin Mary comes over and you can leave and go do something. And one of the questions I, I get a lot from family caregivers is they feel this need when the respite person comes in to say goodbye to their loved one. No, because what will happen is you saying goodbye, you're triggering them and you're telling them I'm walking out the door and you're going to trigger more of that sundowning or sh shadowing behavior. So what you want to do is when the new person comes in, you want to excuse yourself like you're going to go to the bathroom. You just leave the room and then you leave from the back door from the garage. You get the hell out and don't make a big deal about your disappearance and have the respite person or the paid caregiver. If your loved one says, where's Rita? She went to the store. She went out for a little bit. She'll be back. She'll be back in a few. Hey, how about we work on this puzzle? Hey, how about I do your nails? Hey, how about we go over here and do something else? So I will circle back to that next week. And, but going to the emotional unmet needs, there have been studies that looked at different ways to address distress in people living with dementia. And the findings are all over the place. That doesn't mean that there are no benefits. A lot of these studies were poorly designed or the people designing the studies really didn't know their neurobiology. For example, aromatherapy, does that work? Depends on the person living with dementia because in your Alzheimer's type dementia and in some of your other subtypes, the area that of the brain that initially sustains damage is what's called the entorhinal complex, which is the pathway between the nose and the olfactory center in the brain. So you're breathing through your nose, the nerve cells are detecting odors. They're sending the stimuli to your olfactory center and that your olfactory center says, mm, chocolate chip cookies or ew, dog poop, okay? So when you are smelling something, it's not your nose telling you what it is, although we think it is, it's the olfactory center of your brain that's accepting the feedback from the nerves in your nose and assigning meaning to what you are smelling. If that entorhinal complex has atrophied, if it has shrunk, aromatherapy isn't going to work because your brain is unable to, the pathway between the odor and the identification has washed out, it's, it's gone. So that's why studies that used aromatherapy have conflicting results depending on what's going on with your loved one. And that's also some of the reasons why people with dementia 
depending on the type of dementia and what stage they're in, may have a sudden desire for sweets because sweets are less dependent on that intravinal complex for informing the taste. And that's why all of a sudden people are eating all this candy. And you may say, my family member never liked sweets and all of a sudden they're gravitating toward it, brain changes. There have been experiments with what's called a simulated presence where they have videos of the family member or they have recordings and that may help. There's also personalized music. Headphones seem to be better tolerated than earbuds also will, are going to get um, clogged up with wax. So the headphones may work better. And tactile things like massage or doing some, the big thing in a nursing home when I was an aide is we would provide manicures for a lot of the female residents and they really like that. It's pleasant to have a manicure done. So effort for both genders. So a massage, a manic manicure, something that can help with the person feeling good. So there are, again, I like to present behaviors as communication. And if you look at what the person living with dementia is trying to communicate, that unmet need or that fear, that physical problem, and you figure it out, that goes a long way to improving your connection to your loved one with, living with dementia, your ability to communicate, your ability to help meet their needs and to ultimately reduce some of the behaviors. So that wraps up today's program. And at this point, I'm going to open it up Thank you very much for your attention. I hope you found this podcast helpful. Please rate and review on your favorite podcast platform so other dementia caregivers can find this podcast. If you are a caregiver for someone with dementia and need help understanding and dealing with these behaviors, please contact me. You can find me on Facebook, Make Dementia Your Bee, or email me, info at makedementiayourbitch.com.